to understand why we should have a right to free speech and to understand the content of the right to free speech, what counts as within it and what is outside it. We need an understanding of the good or goods that are protected by the right to free speech. And I think the one that is most fundamental, it's not the only one, but the one most fundamentally protected by free speech, both in universities and in democratic republics, is the good of truth and truth-seeking as an aspect of our well-being and fulfillment as human beings. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Today, I would like to share with you the contents of chapter five of my new book of The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. As a German Jew, patriotism does not come naturally to me. And yet I have changed my mind about the virtues and the importance of patriotism over the course of the last decades. I have changed my mind because I saw the way in which the very worst people were able to use the powerful symbolism of a nation when the best, the most aspirational kinds of people retreated from that ground. I changed my mind because I'm seeing over the course of these past terrible months how powerful a motivator patriotism can be for people in Ukraine to volunteer to defend their country against an unjust invasion from Vladimir Putin. And I changed my mind when I read George Orwell, one of my heroes, sit down in the midst of World War II to the seemingly unlikely task of writing a defense of patriotism. Because as he wrote, if British intellectuals had succeeded in their goal of robbing us of patriotism in the preceding decade, the men of ESS would now be patrolling in the streets of London. But of course, there's also a big question about what kind of patriotism we should embrace, because Vladimir Putin too would claim to be a patriot. Here's the real contribution I'm trying to make in this part of my book. Now, one historically influential notion is ethnic nationalism. It is to say that people are defined by a common descent and that this is at the core of what a nation is and should remain. I obviously reject that notion. It does not hold the normative significance that is often claimed for it. And a nationalism rooted in some kind of celebration of ethnic commonality can all too easily be used as justification for the invasion of other countries or international forms of hostility. The second notion, which I do embrace, which I think is important, which philosophers and intellectuals usually resort to when they want to defend patriotism, is a civic or constitutional patriotism. Now, it speaks to me in a deeply personal way. I was proud in the spring of 2017 to swear to defend the laws and the constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. One of the reasons why I chose to become an American, and I'm still German as well, is that I love the constitution, the Federalist Papers, and many of the core ideals which the framers set out and which we are yet to fully live up to. 
But I have two concerns about civic patriotism, one philosophical and one empirical. The philosophical concern is that patriotism by its nature is always a love of something specific. You can love your partner or your spouse without disliking other people, but you have to like your partner or your spouse especially. In the same way, to love your country, to be a patriot, means that you have some special concern, some special solidarity with your own country, even if you might admire many other countries around the world and don't wish them any harm or ill. But the values of liberal democracy are thankfully more universal than one country or another. And yet, an American patriot would not come to be a German or an Australian patriot just because Germany or Australia decided to adopt word for word the US constitution. So there's a little bit of a philosophical puzzle here. That goes hand in hand with a empirical challenge. You all are choosing to spend your time listening to this podcast. So you are outliers in terms of how interested you are in politics. And those of us who are outliers in that respect sometimes find it easy to forget just how weird we are. For most people, when they say they love their country, don't think about politics. They don't think about the Constitution. They cannot tell you what is in the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, even if they are proud Americans. And so I think that we need a third kind of conception of patriotism. One that I call an everyday cultural patriotism. When most people say that they love the country, what they mean is that they love its cities and landscapes, its sights and sounds and smells, its cultural scripts which govern everyday social interactions, even silly aspects of the culture like celebrities or TikTok stars. That everyday culture is not some kind of idealized worship of a more homogeneous past or some kind of dress-up in which we all put on the costumes that people wore, the dresses and the suits that people wore as they descended the plank of the Mayflower. It is a living, breathing, dynamic, ever-changing, forward-looking culture. It is one that is naturally diverse because it reflects in a very straightforward way the contributions which people who have been born in every corner of the globe make today to diverse democracies from the United States to Germany to Australia and beyond. And so I think we should embrace patriotism, we should embrace and celebrate a civic patriotism, but we should also recognize and embrace and celebrate that kind of everyday cultural patriotism. Robert George is the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton, where he also directs the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. He is a distinguished political theorist who's also a prominent defender of free speech. Our conversation talked a little bit about that, about the threats to a genuine culture of free engagement on American campuses and American society more broadly. But we also spent a lot of time talking about the philosophical foundations of our system of government. We spent a lot of time debating whether a philosophically liberal defense 
of civil liberties, of constitutional republics, as it was offered by thinkers like John Rawls, is best, or whether we need to embrace what George calls a more perfectionist argument for these ideals and institutions, which is rooted in a substantive account of the good. The discussion was quite philosophical in parts, but it really helped me think through the best justification for some of the values we hold dear, and I hope it'll help you understand the debates about them much better as well. Robert George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Really good to be on the show. So you've been writing and talking a lot about free speech and the threats on it you see on campus, but also in American public life more broadly. How would you describe the current situation and why should we care about it? The current situation is one in which people in general, including people on college campuses, not only students, but faculty, not only untenured and therefore, in a certain sense, insecure faculty, but tenured faculty who are secure are censoring themselves. All the studies that have been done on this subject reveal that people are not saying what they truly believe, are not raising certain questions they'd like to ask because they fear the social or professional consequences of, quote, saying the wrong thing, unquote, or saying the right thing in, quote, the wrong, unquote, way, <laughs> or failing to say something that it's regarded in this or that institution, for example, institution of higher learning, as required to say, <laughs> like a loyalty oath. Well, this, in my opinion, Yashka, is terrible for institutions of higher learning, terrible for colleges and universities. It makes it impossible for us to prosecute our fundamental mission, the mission of pursuing knowledge of truth. But it's also terrible for a democratic republic. In a democratic republic, the idea, the whole idea, is that the people rule themselves. We're not ruled by a king. We're not ruled by an aristocracy or an oligarchy. We rule ourselves. Now, if we're to rule ourselves well, make good decisions, come up with the best plans for addressing our problems, uh, doing justice, we're going to have to freely consider what's to be said on the competing sides of the various proposals. Any circumstance of freedom, reasonable people of goodwill are going to disagree about some things, including some important things. I've, as you probably know, made something of a career of being a critic of the so-called political liberalism of uh, John Rawls and those associated with that school. But I think he was absolutely right on what he called the fact of reasonable pluralism. In circumstances of freedom, reasonable people of goodwill will find themselves disagreeing about things, and those things will not be confined to the trivial and superficial matters of life. They will include important things, important practical decisions, important decisions about what's right and wrong, just and unjust. To make those decisions well, we have to be able to seek the truth as best we can and speak the truth as best we can. Put on the table all that's to be said on the competing sides of these questions on which reasonable people of goodwill disagree. Try to persuade each other. Try to learn from each other. Certainly listen to each other. So I think the situation's rather dire. 
when people are censoring themselves, you're not saying what they believe, or not even asking certain questions. You can't run academic institutions that way. You can't run a democratic republic that way. End of sermon. It was a good sermon. I'm trying to understand what of this is new and what of this has been the case for a long time. It feels that conservatives and academia in particular have felt embattled for a long time, have felt the marginal to the institutions for a long time. At the same time, I certainly, when I came to the United States as a graduate student, I started my PhD in 2007, at the time felt that we could play with ideas and try and seek the truth in a way that didn't have any attendant fears, in a way in which we were well-intentioned and we wanted to understand what we truly think about the world. But I certainly didn't feel that, you know, oh my God, if in the course of that, I somehow offend somebody or somehow express myself poorly, that might have dire personal or professional consequences for me. And now this seems to be a fear that a lot of people feel over time, but I feel over time, even though, you know, I'm more versed in the discourse and I think better at knowing, you know, where the danger zones lie than I was when I was new to the country. And yet it actually feels much more powerless now than it did in the past. So I sort of have these two conflicting instincts about how new this is. And I wonder whether you have a view on that. Things perceptibly changed in about 2015, 16, something like that. That's at least when I began to perceive, to notice that uh, students were somewhat unwilling to speak their minds or put proposals on the table in class discussion that would run contrary to the dominant view on campus. It wasn't like that before. I arrived at Princeton fresh out of graduate school in 1986. I had no perception that students were having any qualms about expressing their opinions, even if their opinions were out of line with the majority opinion of other students in those days. And that really continued, you know, for what, two and a half more decades. But around 2015, 16, 17, it really began to shift. In 2017, Cornell West and I were moved in part on the basis of our teaching experience, individually and together, we were moved to put out a statement called truth-seeking democracy and freedom of thought and expression. And we were moved to put out that statement precisely because we were perceiving this self-censorship. People now experiencing a kind of tyranny of an orthodoxy. And it was really impeding our work as teachers, and we also feared impeding the proper function of our democratic republic. Now, earlier than that, I'd noticed something different, something that I don't think is related, but perhaps is in some way. Maybe around 2008, 2009, 2010, I began to notice that the attention spans of our students were shrinking. It had very concrete implications. I was finding students were not doing all the reading that I assigned. In my courses, I tended in those days to assign rather a lot of reading. But for my first couple of decades in the academy, there was not a question about students doing it. Students would do the reading. Princeton students are very ambitious. They work very hard. They want to learn. They want to get good grades. They have professional ambitions and graduate school ambitions and so forth. So up until the late 2000s, you could count on students to meet even a pretty onerous burden of, of reading, but I began to notice that even my best students weren't doing it. And it began to become clear with me that it wasn't that they were lazy. It's that their attention spans had shortened. Now, 
Does that have to do with being brought up uh, in a circumstance of social media? I think John Hyde has suggested that social media might have something to do with it, and, and he would know better than I. I'm certainly not a social psychologist, and he's a very distinguished one. But I don't know the cause. I do know, though, that that was happening. But I noticed that at least a half a decade before I began to notice the self-censorship. I'm trying to think through what the connection is. I mean, certainly social media seems to play a role in setting the current culture and trapping us in a culture that I think most of us find to be unhealthy. So what's interesting is that people can be participants in a culture of censorship or in a culture of punishment while actually finding themselves to be scared of its overall shape. So yeah. it's either because they're inconsistent and they're outraged in a particular case and so they pile on in a particular circumstance, even though in different circumstances they're worried about the implications of that, or it's perhaps because they feel peer pressure to participate in some of those cancel campaigns or other things. There's such a strong element of that. That's really part of the picture, and I'm so glad you brought it out. It's not commented on enough. In a lot of these cases, or in the cases of a lot of young people, they feel pressure not only to conform their own speaking and thinking to a dominant orthodoxy, they feel pressure to become part of a mob that attacks somebody else who questions a dominant orthodoxy. They fear that they will be looked at askance, that they will be suspect or become suspect if they don't participate in the howling of the mob. And I think they're even internalizing it in some cases. They will fear that unless they jump on the bandwagon and add their voices to the demands that this person be fired or expelled or whatever it is, that they will be bad people. That if I were a good person, I would be calling for Professor X to have his tenure revoked, or I'd be calling for this fellow student to be subjected to discipline in the college disciplinary system or something like that. This is extremely worrying to me. Yeah, I think one of the most worrying elements of this culture is, you know, things like people getting into trouble for liking a tweet or something like that. So not <laughs> yes. an active expression of opinion, but just a sort of passive one. And then in an even more extreme circumstance, the sort of idea of silence being violence, which is to say, you know, the fact that you did not actively speak out on this particular issue makes you somehow morally open to question, which I do think leads to this perceived need to vocally support whatever the majority opinion is at any one time in a concerning manner. That's absolutely right. I have a little formula that I say about that. Ordinary authoritarians are content to forbid people from saying things they believe to be true. Totalitarians aren't content with that. They take the additional step of forcing people to say things they don't believe are true. And we have moved from that authoritarian impulse to the totalitarian impulse in too many sectors. You mentioned earlier the work of John Rawls, and I wanted to get a little bit more into detail about that. So you are a defender of liberal democracy, of constitutional republics, 
but you believe that the way in which political philosophers have traditionally defended them, at least in the last 50 or so years in the Anglo-American world, is mistaken in important ways. Perhaps explain to us what you think the right defense of these systems <laughs> of government is and why it is that a lot of philosophical liberals get that wrong, according to you. Yes, I uh, made my early career as a critic of the sort of liberalism that was championed by John Rawls. He was the greatest figure in the tradition, but there were other very distinguished exponents of that approach. One of my own teachers, Ronald Dworkin, who I had at, at Harvard and then at Oxford, and many others. I have great respect for that tradition. I said so in my first book. The preface to my book, Making Men Moral, begins really with an expression of respect for that tradition and for the work of the great figures in that tradition. I think John Rawls was a very great thinker. I happen to see things differently, and I've stated my reasons beginning in that book, beginning in Making Men Moral. But I don't think he was an idiot or a fool, or that that tradition is just foolishness and silliness. I think there are important truths in the tradition, important principles and ideas that are to be learned from and not simply dismissed, certainly not denigrated. So I'll begin there just as I began my book in 1993. But I do have objections. I have reasons for thinking that approach is wrong. Well, what is the approach? The approach is to conceive justice as fairness. What does it mean to do justice? It's to be fair. What is the essence of justice? It's fairness. Now, I agree that fairness is an element of justice. I think it's part of the picture, but it's not the whole story. I here side with the Greeks of antiquity in believing that justice is giving each his due, which will include fairness of treatment, but may include more than that. But they begin from the proposition that justice is fairness. That's where Rawls begins. What's the difference here? I think some listeners may be hearing this and saying, well, fairness is a pretty indeterminate concept, and why can't we define fairness as giving each their due? That well, if you redefine fairness in that way, if you define it simply as meaning give each their due, the debate goes away. <laughs> right. But how is the way in which rules and his followers understood fairness more limited than how you want to understand justice as giving each their due? I think that'll be clear if we look at how he devises a mechanism for choosing principles of justice. The mechanism, as you know, is to imagine ourselves in what he calls the original position. And in the original position, we are behind what he calls a veil of ignorance. Behind the veil, we know nothing about what makes us different from anyone else. We know nothing of what an older tradition of metaphysics would call accidental properties. We don't know whether we're white or black, Asian or Latino, know nothing about our racial or ethnic identity, don't know whether we're male or female. We don't know whether we're poor or rich. We don't know whether we're Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, unbelieving. We know anything about ourselves that might make us different from anybody else. All we know about ourselves are the things we know all human beings have in common, what Rawls calls the primary goods. The things that everyone wants, no matter what else they want. Things like self-respect, more opportunity rather than less, more wealth rather than less, and so forth. Now, behind that veil of ignorance in the original position, we're ideally situated to do justice as fairness, because we're going to be choosing principles of justice to govern in the well-ordered society 
that we ourselves are prepared to live in when we come out from behind the veil and find who we are, <laughs> discover who we are. An Asian woman whose parents came to America from, let's say, Vietnam. She is uh, upper middle class. Her parents have been successful in business. You find out who you are and these qualities about you. But you've chosen the principles that are going to govern before you knew any of that. And, and Rawls argues that behind that veil, knowing what we know about human psychology. Now, of course, this is controversial and some of Rawls's critics think uh, he's helping himself to some assumptions here about human psychology that are not universally shared. But he thinks, since people are fairly risk averse, that we would choose two basic principles and then all of our civil liberties and our ideas about how government should be organized and other institutions should be organized will be based on these principles. One is that we should all have the maximum liberty consistent with a like liberty for all. And two, sometimes called the maximum principle or the difference principle, is that inequalities in society are tolerable only to the extent that what basically comes down to is efforts to eradicate those inequalities or ameliorate them would actually hurt the worst off people in the society. And he's right that the principles that would be chosen, whether he's right about whether those principles would be chosen depends on whether you think he's right about some aspects of human psychology, such as risk aversion. But he's certainly right that whatever principles would be chosen in the artificial conditions of the original position would be fair in the sense that they wouldn't be unfair. There would be no bias. There, no bias could enter because I don't know anything about myself that would make me different from anyone else. This is what's ingenious about it. And he was a brilliant man, a man from whom even critics like myself or Michael Sandel or Alastair McIntyre or John Finn can learn and have learned. Now, essential to this whole view is what Rawls calls and embraces as anti-perfectionism. That's an idea that's developed still further by Professor Dworkin, the late Professor Dworkin. Unfortunately, both Rawls and Dworkin are no longer with us, but they were towering figures in the time, and their legacy remains important. Anti-perfectionism in political theory, embraced by Rawls, is the idea that government decisions, especially those having to do with constitutional essentials and matters of basic justice, most especially those that limit liberty in this way or that, should prescind from not be made on the basis of controversial ideas about what makes for or detracts from a valuable and morally worthy way of life. This is sometimes referred to as the idea of liberal neutrality, that liberalism is the view that in designing institutions of government and principles of politics, we should be neutral on controversial moral questions. This enables Rawls to propose that the right is prior to the good, the priority of the right to the good. People will differ in circumstances of freedom. This is the principle of reasonable pluralism. People will differ about what they think the good consists in, what the good life is, what a life worth living is, what makes for it detracts from a valuable and morally worthy way of life. Now, Rawls, like Dworkin, is not proposing moral skepticism about that or moral relativism. It's just, some people may be right, some people may be wrong, but people are going to differ. Reasonable people of goodwill are going to differ on what the good is. So what we have to figure out is a way to figure out what is right, what is the right ordering of society, what rights people have, irrespective of what their conception of the good is. And this is where critics, not just me, but some of the ones I've mentioned, Sandel, 
Innes, McIntyre, many others, have expressed their grave doubts, let us say. So I think there's two interesting things going on here. The first is that what was seen as really the most controversial and important contribution of Rawls, I think, at the time of the publication of A Theory of Justice in 1971 and for a while after, was the derivation of a difference principle. So it was really a, a question of material distribution, which, as you say, hinges on a debate of whether or not he needed to assume some kind of risk aversion in order to get to that outcome. And there's a very lively debate about whether this is the right way of governing a society economically. That seemed like the most important question, it feels like in the 70s or 80s, in part because of the state of a broader political debate. But I think today, when we debate about rules, when we think about his lasting contribution, in a way, the difference principle seems nearly sort of irrelevant. It's discussed much less because what's at the center of our debates today is much more of a question of how do you deal with the fact of a diverse society? How do you deal with a society in which people have these very different religious and political beliefs, and they somehow have to sustain a common scheme of what you would call social cooperation, right? And so the question then shifts to not can we derive this economic set of principles from the original position, but can we derive the right set of views about how to mediate between people with these fundamentally different conceptions of what the good life is? Now, one criticism I often hear about rules, often from people who are less sophisticated than his main critics, is something like, well, look, the problem with liberals is that they just don't care about religion, they don't understand religion, they don't see how fundamentally important it is to the citizens of a lot of contemporary democracies, and so they're dismissive of the kind of duties that it imposes on people who have these deep beliefs. And that to me seems to me to have a relatively easy answer because actually there certainly is a strand in liberalism which is a little bit like that, which is dismissive of religion, which is actually just anti-religious or secularist. And even though I myself do not come from religious tradition, I recognize that as a big mistake. We have to be respectful towards the deeply held religious beliefs that a lot of our common fellow citizens have. But the way that I would understand liberalism is to say, no, it starts precisely from the fact of the importance of those religious beliefs. That is precisely why this is such a hard problem, because we know that so many of our fellow citizens have very strong commitments in this respect and that they disagree with each other. And so the reason why we need to have a set of policies that are guided, broadly speaking, by something like the right rather than the good, which is to say by a set of regulative principles about how we can deal with each other, rather than by agreement about what actually is worthwhile in the world, is precisely because we have such fundamental disagreements about these questions. And therefore, the state shouldn't get to prescribe to citizens how they should live. We need to figure out a set of rules, which to the maximum extent possible, allows each citizen to be true to their conscience, to be true to their religious beliefs, even though the neighbor may have completely different convictions and compulsions. So how do you respond to that kind of defense to liberalism? What is it that that kind of defense of liberalism might or might not miss? Okay, so there's a whole lot there. First, you're right that much of the discussion of Rawls in the immediate aftermath of the publication of his thought in the form of a book, he had had some articles out before that, but 
the publication of his book in 1971 had to do with the difference principle, had to do with questions of distributive justice. And so that principle was in focus. But even then, uh, there were people, and as I came along, I was one of them, who, though finding that question interesting, also thought we needed some attention to the liberty principle, to the other principle. Those tended to be people like myself who were interested in fundamental questions of civil liberty and equality and the proper design of institutions of government. So the debate has really, from the beginning, concerned both questions, although I I don't disagree that there was more focus in those days on the implications for distributive justice of Rawls's position than there is today, and maybe a bit less on the civil liberties and related issues. But it was the latter that engaged me more intensely. And Rawls is addressing a really important question for anybody, whether you're an anti-perfectionist like him and Dworkin or you're a perfectionist like myself and Sandel, we all have to come up with a way of figuring out how we live together despite deep differences, because we all think Rawls is right on the fact of reasonable pluralism. If you have freedom, especially religious freedom, freedom of speech, fundamental civil liberties, there are going to be differences of opinion, and they won't be restricted to the trivial and minor and superficial things of life. As Jeremy Waldron, one of Dworkin's students and critics, points out, they will reach the most profound and important questions. Here's the problem we critics have with Rawls's way of solving the problem. Be great if you could do it Rawls's way. That is, if you could really prescind, avoid smuggling in to your prescriptions, ideas about the human good. But there's where we think Rawls and Dworkin and the other anti-perfectionists ultimately fail. Joseph Raz, another of my teachers, who's much more on the liberal side than I am, but a perfectionist liberal, a critic of Rawls and Dworkin, makes this point really powerfully. You find that anti-perfectionist liberalism can't deliver on its promise to prescind from questions of the human good, from these fundamental questions. And the best and easiest example is even trying to decide whose interests count for those in the original position who are choosing the principles of justice. Should it include the severely cognitively disabled? Should it include the unborn? Should it include the newly born? What about certain non-human animals that have certain intellectual capacities? And that just begins the question. So when we see the actual prescriptions, we see, well, you know, formally considerations of these deep, profound issues, issues that go beyond just selecting fair principles. In theory, formally, they're excluded, but in practice, they're brought in because they have to be brought in when push comes to shove. And that's because... I think our basic ideas about rights are shaped by some fundamental conceptions about the good. And so this is why I think Rawls is not only wrong on this point, but he has it exactly backwards. The good is prior to the right. Our conceptions of the right and rights, like the right to freedom of speech, its contours, its limits, its content, will be shaped in part by your conception of the human good. If you believe, as I believe, 
that a fundamental, irreducible, intrinsic aspect of human well-being and fulfillment. I'm sounding Aristotelian here because I am one. If you believe, as I believe, that that aspect of our well-being is truth and truth-seeking, the pursuit of knowledge, knowledge of truth, then your argument for free speech will draw on that understanding of the good of truth-seeking that is served precisely by free speech. The best example of this kind of argument being made is by John Stuart Mill in the second chapter of his great essay on liberty, the chapter on freedom of thought and discussion. He has in the previous chapter, as you'll recall, he has foregone any advantage to his argument to be had by appeal to abstract right. So he's rejected what would you know, later become the Rawlsian approach. Don't want it. Don't believe in abstract right. He's going to argue from the good. Now, he's got a way of approaching questions of the good, which is radically at odds with my own. He's a Benthamite. He's a modified Benthamite, but he, he's still a utilitarian. <laughs> I don't think that works. But I think he is absolutely right to suppose that to understand why we should have a right to free speech and to understand the content of the right to free speech, what counts as within it and what is outside it, we need an understanding of the good or goods that are protected by the right to free speech. And I think the one that is most fundamental, it's not the only one, but the one most fundamentally protected by free speech, both in universities and in democratic republics, is the good of truth and truth-seeking as an aspect of our well-being and fulfillment as human beings. I have a couple of questions about this. The first is whether it isn't possible to respond to the main objection you have formulated so far of the Rawlsian liberal tradition by saying that there's a boundary problem which all societies have, which liberal societies have, and that you need to engage in some forms of substantial moral deliberation in order to answer those boundary problems. So clearly you need to think, well, look, if we're trying to create a society in which we treat each other fairly, more justly, who's a member of the society? And part of that is about the boundaries of a nation and the obligations that we might have to people who are outside of a nation, either because they're territorially in a different place or because they may be on the same territory but don't enjoy citizenship for one reason or another. There's questions, as you point out, about people who are human but who don't have full human capacities, whether that is the unborn, whether that is very young children, whether that is people who are severely mentally disabled. And so then you have to have a set of substantive moral deliberations about who gets to count as part of a moral circle, who is owed the status of a full member of this society with all the duties and rights that come with that. But you might say, once you have answered that question, once you have, using substantive criteria, figured out who is a member of the society, then you should indeed act in accordance with principles of right rather than the good, which is to say you should indeed make sure that you treat all of those members of the society as full moral equals, which means that the state should not have a particular view as to which of their conceptions of how to live life takes precedence over another, and should therefore have a goal to enabling each of them to lead their lives in the most self-determined way possible, obviously with a constraint that they cannot go around telling other people how to live. And that might lead to a question about free speech as well, which is to say that the view you outline is attractive, but of course, particularly at a time in which people claim that free speech on social media is precisely what leads to the spread of misinformation and to all these disastrous consequences, 
it is also an argument which actually opens itself up to a lot of empirical pressure by people saying, look, you know, we have free speech on social media and so on. And what do we get? We get people falsely denying the efficacy of vaccines and believing in QAnon and all these different conspiracy theories. So if the justification for free speech is the good, well, actually, doesn't have really bad results. And isn't that precisely a way or a reason uh, to censor it, where somebody from within a less perfectionist tradition of liberalism might have a clearer answer, which is no, actually, the point is that we cannot know entirely what is right, and the state does not have an entitlement to tell the citizens what is right or wrong. And so to respect the moral autonomy of the members of a society, it has to respect their ability to voice themselves freely. And that may be true even if sometimes it has bad consequences, even if sometimes it leads to the spread of bad ideas and so on. Doesn't that seem like a more sort of fundamental defense of free speech than one which makes this argument about how empirically a right of free speech serves some good, whether that's understood in a utilitarian way or in a way that's more rooted in natural law? Well, I just don't think it works. Interestingly, but to me not surprisingly, you don't find anti-perfectionist liberals out there in the vanguard defending Joe Rogan or Brett Weinstein or Heather Hying or people like that. I wouldn't expect it and it's not what we're seeing. I think that we really have no choice in the end but to debate issues of free speech on perfectionist terms. It is true that when you do it that way, there will be people whose perfectionism produces for them different results than mine produces for me. <laughs> mine will produce civil libertarian results when it comes to freedom of speech and freedom of religion and so forth. Others will say, no, you know, for the sake of religious truth, we can't have religious freedom. We need the state to be empowered to enforce religious doctrines. Some people will say, no, for the sake of truth, we can't have people denying truths about science or truths about psychology or society. I'm not saying that no perfectionist case can be made against civil liberties. I'm saying that a perfectionist case, I think a powerful one, you can read my writing or the writings of other perfectionists who share my views on this, I think a more powerful case can be made for civil liberties. It's just a question of where you think the argument should take place. Should it take place on perfectionist terms or does anti-perfectionism enable us to parachute out of those difficult questions of what really is good or how the good can best be served. And this is why I've sometimes described Rawls's project, and I'm misunderstood. I'm using the term in an old-fashioned sense that I guess people no longer remember, but I call the project heroic. I think it's a spectacular failure, but a spectacular one, and it's heroic because it has such a grand aim of enabling us to get out of the most difficult sorts of arguments, the ones about the nature of the good and how it's best served, we can maybe escape all that and we can just have a formal principle or set of principles that will excuse us from the tough stuff. That's heroic, but it doesn't work. It'll always in the end end up smuggling perfectionist principles, not in bad faith, I think where we find it in Rawls's work, like on his famous footnote about abortion, where just about everybody realizes on all sides, no matter where you are on the issue, you realize, gosh, Rawls is really there making some perfectionist assumptions. He's thinking that he's not. He's in good faith. He's not in bad faith. He's not cheating. But he's failing to see that he's smuggling in 
precisely the kinds of controversial opinions that anti-perfectionism and his whole apparatus is meant to avoid or exclude. So, assuming that we buy your case for a perfectionist liberalism... Well, uh, I don't know if I'd call it... The word liberalism is so indeterminate now in its meaning. It's used by so many people in so many different ways to mean so many different things. I've always thought of myself as a conservative, not a liberal. <laughs> but many of my civil libertarian beliefs, my liberal friends, at least those who are still old-fashioned liberal, <laughs> as opposed to woke progressives, my liberal friends say, well, that's us. You're one of us. And sometimes my really conservative friends say, you're a liberal. But my views haven't changed on these issues since I first published them in 1993, when my book, Making Men Moral, was regarded as a full-bore attack on liberalism. So, I don't know, am I a liberal? <laughs> I can't tell. I'm sitting here doing my work, thinking what I'm thinking, and one minute they call me a conservative, and the next minute they call me a liberal. Well, I can't answer that existential crisis for you, but, but, <laughs> but, but I suppose let's say this. You're a strong believer in civil liberties, including free speech, and you're obviously a believer in what you may call a democratic republic, what I would call a liberal democracy. A liberal democracy, okay, yeah. What is the perfectionist case for those, and how in particular can people who recognize that we will never agree about the most fundamental moral issues, that we'll always have disagreements about religion and other really important matters, settle those questions in a way that is based on argument about the good, rather than some workaround which helps us not to argue mm -hmm. about the good when we try to figure out how to treat each other within the realm of the laws. Yeah. Among the things we argue about when we argue about the good is what liberties are needed to protect the most basic forms of good, those goods that are not merely instrumental goods, not things that provide reasons for action in virtue of what they can get you, those things that are means, but those things that are ends in themselves, intrinsic goods, things that it's reasonable to want for their own sakes and not merely as means to other ends. Knowledge itself, for example, while it can have a lot of practical instrumental value, well, at least I believe it, it's most fundamentally of intrinsic value. Friendship, there's one that just about anybody can recognize, a purely instrumental friendship in which the friends are simply using each other as opposed to genuinely willing the good of the other for the sake of the other. Everyone recognizes that's not a friendship at all. That's a friendship in inverted commas. That's a faux friendship. So we're going to have to argue about, think hard about, try to learn from each other about what liberties need to be in place if those goods are to be protected and advanced. And here I, again, point to Mill, while rejecting his utilitarianism, as an example of a good kind of argument, I think a sound way of arguing for a basic civil liberty, in this case, freedom of speech. Now, will there be Objections? Absolutely. I've thought a lot about them. I've thought about whether those objections, in fact, have merit and carry. And I've concluded that they don't. There are reasonable people of goodwill who disagree with me about that. At the end of the day, we need a procedure, political procedure, for deciding policy questions that need to be decided one way or another where we have these debates. Here, I do favor, I don't think it's the only possible legitimate government, but I think all things considered, 
I think it's best where the conditions for its establishment and maintenance are in place. I'm building in all sorts of things here, obviously, but I think it's best to have a republic, a democratic republic, where people can communicate with each other and participate and thus be and feel vested in the decisions that will govern them. The other thing I like about democratic republics is there are no permanent winners and no permanent losers. I may lose the debate today. I might even lose it decisively. By lose the debate, I mean lose the election or lose the resolution of the matter in the forms of deliberative democracy. My view doesn't get made into policy. The view I oppose gets made into policy. But I can always come back. I can always say to my fellow citizens, you know, we've got some experience with this. Now, we made a mistake. We should go back and reconsider this, start a movement. We can question it. And there's where civil liberties are important. We can't just have a democracy. I think the American founders were right. Democracy is not the way to go. A republic with powerful democratic elements, a democratic republic, is the way to go, but not a pure, straight up, straight on, unmediated democracy. I think there have to be civil liberties that are in place, some of which have to do with our participation, our rights of participation. John Hart Ely has written a book, the late John Hart Ely, another great figure from uh, the recent past who's no longer with us, a book called Democracy and Distrust, which I assign every year in my Princeton course in constitutional interpretation. A book I don't entirely agree with, but makes some very important, powerful, and I think true points about the need to protect as civil liberties, basic participation rights in the political system. It's for the good. I'd make a perfectionist argument for that kind of democratic participation and those rights of democratic participation. So I think that's the way to go. I'd echo a point here that was made by John Paul II, the late pontiff, and he went around the world preaching democracy, which not all popes have done. <laughs> popes in the 19th century were very skeptical about democracy. And here, you have the head of the Catholic Church being a champion of democracy. By democracy, I think, meant not a pure, straight-on democracy, but a democracy appropriately protective of civil liberties, minority rights, and so forth. But his point was that the value of democracy comes in part because it recognizes the radical equality of human beings. This principle that whatever our, if I can use that old metaphysical category, accidental differences are, race, sex, ethnicity, so forth and so on, that we're fundamentally equal in worth and dignity. And democracy honors that in a special way that competing regimes, competing systems of government do not. Now, that, again, doesn't mean that no other system of government could ever, under any circumstances, be just. But it's a point in favor of democracy, and I think he was right about it. But there, you know, I'm now embracing a very controversial point of view, and that is that human beings are fundamentally equal, that we all, simply in virtue of our humanity, are bearers of profound, inherent, and equal dignity. Whatever our differences are in strength, beauty, intelligence, athletic prowess, skill, whatever those differences are in it, however much they make legitimate certain ways of treating people differently, you know, hiring professional athletes or, or university faculty or whatever, that in the most fundamental sense, we're all radically equal. Even the uh, demented or drug addicted or alcoholic, 
homeless woman uh, living under a bridge, barely aware of who she herself is, smelly, difficult, accosting people who come by, shouting at people, being a complete nuisance, that that person is the equal in fundamental worth and dignity to Michael Jordan, the great athlete, or Albert Einstein, the great physicist, or Meryl Streep, the great actress, or Kathleen Battle, the great singer. That's a controversial, radical notion, but it's one I believe. There's something in what you said, which I think really speaks to the case for free speech from a more uh, comparative politics perspective or a more instrumental perspective, which is the importance in democracy that when you lose an election or you lose a debate about a policy, you can always keep making the case for your point of view. And one of the things I worry about in a culture in which the losers of a particular political battle, or often the losers of a cultural battle, who may have won a political election but don't have influence in the most uh, powerful institutions of society like corporations and tech companies and so on, that when they start to feel, look, if I lose this, I'm not even going to be able to speak up, it immediately escalates the mm. state of politics because it precisely takes away the ability to say, look, I don't like the prevailing culture, I don't like the kinds of things people say or the kinds of product lines we see in movies, I may not like the person who's in the White House, but I can always make the case for my position and I might always be able to assemble the necessary coalition to win the next election. I think when people start to think, if I lose this election or if I don't get some way of gaining influence over the actions of these corporations, we're not even going to be able to speak up for myself. That escalates the stakes of politics in a way that we all should be very worried about. But That's I such an important point. That is really such an important point. I, I haven't thought it out nearly as well as you have, but what it helps to explain is the concept of the Flight 93 election. This is it. The idea that this is it. If we lose this one, it's all over. We're crushed under the heel of the oppressor. We now live in tyranny. Our basic rights to ever question or reform what needs to be questioned and reformed will be, will be gone. So now it's by any means necessary. We have to win by any means necessary. That's dangerous. That's dangerous to a democratic republic if people feel they're in that position. So I'd like to get back to that essay by Michael Anton and the sort of embrace of Trumpism that it pioneered among part of a conservative movement to cap off the podcast. But before we get there, what is your case for free speech? I think you've hinted at it in various ways throughout this conversation. And it sounds like a sympathetic, this particular instrumental case, but it sounds to me like ultimately you have a perfectionist case for the need for free speech. I would love to hear a sort of three minute version of that. Yes, it's articulated in the final chapter of my first book, Making Men Moral, which was published by Oxford University Press in 1993, in a chapter entitled Pluralistic Perfectionism. And it provides a perfectionist case going one by one through the classic basic civil liberties, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and so forth. And with respect to uh, speech, it's most fundamentally the importance of truth and truth-seeking. So I was persuaded when I was a sophomore in college of something of a position that I'd never even considered before that, which is that truth has intrinsic as well as instrumental value. In fact, its most fundamental value is its intrinsic value. Not to deny that it has important instrumental value as well, 
But I became convinced that it was a basic, irreducible, constitutive aspect of the well-being and fulfillment of human beings as constituted by the nature we're constituted by, as rational creatures, as thinking beings, as agents. So that makes me want to know, okay, what are the conditions that have to be in place for people to look for the truth and find the truth? Well, they need to be free to look for the truth. They need to be free to speak the truth as best they understand the truth, subject to revision in light of counterargument and evidence and you know, reasons that critics might have. But you can't be a truth seeker, much less a truth speaker, if your speech, your right to think for yourself, to inquire, to express your views, to engage with others, to put your ideas on the table, if your right to those things is restricted. I think that's the essence of the case for free speech. And it's important in a lot of areas, including economic matters, but it's really important in institutions whose whole reason for being, whose whole mission is truth-seeking, universities, colleges, research institutes. And it's really important in government, in politics, especially, not exclusively, but especially where you have a democratic republic, where the people are supposed to rule themselves, make good decisions for themselves. Now, you have to recognize that when you allow free speech, the demagogues got it the same as the statesmen, right? Huey Long has it just as much as Abraham Lincoln does. And here I'm operating on what you might call either a bet or faith. I prefer to think of it as faith, but it's not certainty either way. My bet, my faith is that truth has a certain power and luminosity. That doesn't guarantee that it will win out every time. What it does mean is that we are more likely to get to it or nearer to it, grasp it a bit more fully in circumstances of freedom than we are in circumstances where everyone is required to conform to a particular point of view and where the institutions of society and we ourselves reinforce each other in what we already believe. Where I have encountered, and it's much too common, Yashka, as you know, where I've encountered groupthink and conformist culture in academia, I can tell you it is toxic to truth-seeking. Freedom doesn't mean you're going to get the truth. You might get things really profoundly wrong in circumstances of freedom. But I consider those circumstances much healthier for the truth-seeking enterprise than when those circumstances disappear, even if it's not because of coercive laws or rules. A university might have great free speech rules, but if the culture is a culture of groupthink and conformism, that is absolutely toxic to the truth-seeking process. Nobody learns anything. People are reinforced in what they believe, whatever they happen to believe, and we're all fallible. A lot of what we believe at any particular moment right now, every human being on earth right this moment has in his or her head a lot of things that are wrong. That's because we're fallible. Of course, we're going to get some things wrong. But our only hope of moving from false beliefs in any particular domain to true ones, swapping out the false ones, getting rid of them, getting some true beliefs in there in their place, is if we allow ourselves to be challenged. And if we're in conditions where we are challenged and eventually able at least to challenge ourselves, I mean, this is what my real goal for my students and myself is to get ourselves to the point where not only are we open to the challenge from others, but we're willing to be our own best critics, to be self-critical, to challenge ourselves. 
you know, while you were making this impassioned defense for free speech, I was thinking ironically of a Rawlsian concept, which had to be overlapping consensus. Um, And actually, I'm very glad to share this perfectionist case for free speech with my listeners, which I'm attracted to. I'm torn as to whether it's my own case for free speech. But actually, what we need in order to sustain free speech is each person to come to a principled belief in free speech for their own reasons. And there's actually, I think, politically speaking, no problem with having a coalition of people who believe in free speech for perfectionist reasons or for reasons that are more rooted in the philosophical liberal tradition of rules or for perhaps just hard-headed political reasons, like the one I pointed out about negative consequences for political peace and stability of not having free speech. So in a way, this is one of those circumstances in which, as American lawyers like to say, it makes sense to throw a lot of shit against the wall and see what sticks, because we can sort of join arms as principal defenders of free speech, even if we each have slightly different accounts of what gets us there. That's the reality out there right now, actually. If you look at who the defenders of free speech are, and if you look at where the threats to free speech are coming from, in either of those cases, it's not all on one side of the ideological or philosophical spectrum. That's interesting. There are threats to free speech from both the right and the left. There are great defenses of free speech coming from both people on the right and people on the left. They're coming from people who are old-fashioned Lockean or Rawlsian liberals, people who are utilitarians, like Mill. Mill was not, you know, not all of utilitarians are defenders of free speech, obviously, but some in that tradition of Mill are Aristotelians like myself, people of different religious backgrounds. There's a very interesting phenomenon out there right now. Weird coalitions have formed. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Rawls's overlapping consensus because it reminds us that Rawls himself again, to his very great credit, it, it, it shows you that he was an exemplary philosopher. And I, even as a strong critic, love to say that because he took on board serious criticism. Just as a last question, I want to go back to your mention of the Flight 93 election essay by Michael Anton, which I think was a crucial moment in persuading a lot of sort of movement conservatives who were quite critical of Donald Trump to embrace his candidacy in 2016. And it now feels as though Trump is very much in control, not only of the Republican Party as represented in Congress, but also of a conservative movement as represented in an institution like CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, for example. You remain quite optimistic, as I understand it, about the future of a conservatism that opposes Trump or is able to distance itself from him. What's the conservative case against Trump and what is the case for a conservative future after Trump? Well, it seems to me that conservatism should go back to its first principles. When any tradition goes into crisis, the thing it needs to do is to go back to its first principles and first see whether we still believe them. Do we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights? Among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Do we? Conservatives used to. (laughs) I still do. Now, are we honoring that principle or other basic principles? The importance of the institutions of civil society, the importance of limited government, not simply, although this is part of the picture, to protect individual rights and prerogatives and judgments, but also to protect the institutions of civil society, which have the primary role, should have the primary role, at least we conservatives, those of us who are conservative, have always thought they should have the primary role 
in delivering health, education, and welfare, and imparting to each new generation the values and virtues, life skills necessary to lead successful lives and be productive citizens. How should we think about our nation's exceptionalism? Conservatives used to be for American exceptionalism. It was a first principle, one of the core principles. Well, the exceptionalism means this. We're not a nation like other nations built on or the unity of whose citizens is integrated around blood and soil. We're thrown an altar. And the way that played out historically in the United States was that anybody from anywhere could become an American. Because being American is not a matter of blood and soil. It's not a matter of having the right religion. It's not a matter of having the right ethnicity or race. The terrible history of race is beginning with slavery. But our formal principles, at least, our exceptionalism was based on the idea that anybody could be an American. All you need to do is sign up for citizenship, agree to meet the requirements for it, fulfill your obligations as a citizen, sign on to the American creed, the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution. Do we still believe that? I do. I also think that can still be sold to people, whether they count themselves as conservatives or not, including a lot of people who see Donald Trump as the only hope because they're in Flight 93 mode. And we could go on into other questions of economic policy, foreign policy, defense, and so forth. And I would still be asking myself the same question. Let's look at our first principles as conservatives, I would say as Americans. Do we still believe them? Okay, if we do, what are the implications for how we should conduct ourselves? What policies we should support with respect, say, to immigration or the institution of civil society, the family, the church, the neighborhood association, and so forth? decentralization, federalism, the limited powers of the national government under the theory of the Constitution. I want to get back to all that. That, to me, is what conservatism is about. And more fundamentally, that, to me, is what the American idea is all about, what sound political theory in a democratic republic is all about. Robert George, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Yasuka. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.